Hello, my name is Chrissy Champagne, and you are listening to Residue, a true crime podcast dedicated to keeping you paranoid. In the summer of 1993, a lot of horrible crime was happening in Seattle. Singer-songwriter Mia Zapata of The Gits was affected by all of the talk of serial killers and the crime happening around her, and it was reflected in her writing. One song in particular that she wrote was named Sign of the Crab. The lyrics were, Go ahead and slice me up, spread me all across this town, because you know you're the one that won't be found. Maybe I've pushed my luck one too many times, and now you've taken it upon yourself to put me back in line. Well, leave it to fear to get the message through, but isn't that the romance that brought me here to you? Mia Zapata was born August 25, 1965, and was raised in Louisville, Kentucky. Mia was raised in an upper middle class family with loving parents Richard and Donna Zapata. She was the youngest of three children. Mia often rejected material things, and as her father once said about her, Mia lived in two different worlds. She lived on two different sides of the street. The straight side on one with parochial schools, an affluent family, and tennis clubs. But when she crossed the street, material things didn't mean anything to her. Mia learned guitar and piano by age nine. Her father Richard said of Mia, she was quiet, reserved, ultra shy, but with a mic in her hand, she was magnetic. In 1984, Mia enrolled at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, as a liberal arts student. Antioch College is a supportive environment where students are empowered to be themselves and learn about who they are and what they want to be. In September of 1986, she and three friends formed the punk rock band The Sniveling Little Rat-Faced Gits, and that's a reference to a Monty Python skit. The band consisted of Steve Moriarty on drums, Matt Dresdner on bass, Andrew Kessler, a.k.a. Joe Spleen, on guitar, and they wanted Mia to sing for them and had even said, I almost cried the first time I heard her sing. If you haven't ever checked out um, Mia Zapata or The Gits, I would definitely recommend doing that. And I would say I would compare her voice to uh, Brody Dahl of The Distillers or Allison Mosshart of The Kills. They are definitely influenced by Mia uh, when you listen to their music also. So that just gives you a little example of what her voice sounded like. So the band ends up shortening their name to something a little catchier. So they just go with the Gits. And a Git is like a freak or a dork, a nerd. And the Gits shows at Antioch College were unparalleled. But the band wanted to get away from the East Coast. And once they got to Seattle, it felt like home. The band lived separately for a bit until they all moved into what they called the Rat House. It was a rowdy band house, one of those houses that everyone needs in their lives at some point, especially in their early 20s. At this point, the Gits were bringing something else to the table that no one else had done at that moment. Celine Vigil from the band Seven Year Bitch, which, come on, by the way, greatest band name ever. She had said of the Gits, we respected and admired them and just thought that they were the shit. Valerie Agnew, also of Seven Year Bitch, had said that 
we borrowed their gear and they helped us. So Mia had encouraged the girls from that band to actually stop standing in the crowd and get the confidence to get up on stage and do their own thing. And the Gits actually taught them how to play their instruments and they gave them a practice space. And Celine had actually said that she was very intimidated by the fact that Mia's bedroom was actually right above their practice space. Mia always had a journal with her, and you could always find her sitting alone, jotting down lyrics in her journal. One of my favorite quotes was from Steve Moriarty of The Gits. He said, What we considered punk was the whole do-it-yourself ethic. If you need to make something happen, you decided you were going to do it, and you just started from scratch, and you did it. The Gits surrounded themselves with a huge musical community of friends, and they all considered them a family. In one of Mia's songs called Drinking Song, she wrote the lyrics, All I got left in the end are my friends. God love them, my fucking friends. So, Seven Year Bitch starts blowing up on the music scene. They're getting signed, they're playing and headlining huge shows, and the Gits are jokingly like, wait, we taught you how to play your instruments, and now you're getting signed. And of course, they were so supportive of them and loved them. And Seven Year Bitch was actually asked to be in a documentary, and they told the filmmakers, they were like, yo, if you don't know the Gits, you better get on that now. So this camaraderie was their whole thing. This was the way they were. They were like best friends till the end. Sadly, Stephanie Sargent from Seven Year Bitch died on June 27th, 1992. She died from asphyxiation after choking on her vomit at the age of 24, four months before the release of Seven Year Bitch's debut album, Sick'em. Mia was absolutely wrecked by this. Almost one year later to the exact day of Stephanie's death, Mia Zapata would be at the Comet Tavern with her friends. They were celebrating an upcoming tour that the Gits were about to head off on, and it was a bittersweet night because of the anniversary of Stephanie's death, and Mia was just a mix of emotions that night. She had just also broken up with her boyfriend, and her friend Valerie Agnew recalls that Mia had come into the bar that night in a really, really good, happy mood. She hugged Valerie and licked her face, (laughs) which was a typical Mia move. Mia left the Comet Tavern around midnight. She went to visit a friend who lived nearby, and she left that friend's apartment on foot at about 2 a.m. Mia loved to walk, and that's why she didn't take a cab. She had also said and mentioned to her friends one time that cab drivers creeped her out. The next morning, Mia didn't show up for band practice, and everyone is worried. No no calls from her, no one had seen her. The band exhausts all possibilities, and someone suggests we should call the morgue. It was 3.30 a.m. on July 7th, 1993, in Seattle's Central District. A woman is walking down a deserted street, and she sees what she believes to be a body sprawled out on the ground. The victim was a young woman laying on her back, her feet together, arms stretched out to the side. She had been strangled from the ties on her hoodie. The ties from her hoodie were now wrapped around her neck. Paramedics arrived to the scene, but the woman has no identification on her. They try to resuscitate, but it's too late. The coroner actually said had she not been strangled, she most likely would have died immediately on the scene because she was beaten so badly. 
blows to her abdomen, knees to her body. She was labeled as a Jane Doe and her body was taken to the medical examiner. During the autopsy, the medical examiner finds that she had been sexually assaulted and also bitten on the breast. The DNA is tested to make sure this is saliva, but unfortunately at that time in 1993, the samples were too small for testing, so it was stored away in a freezer. At one point, the medical examiner looks down at the woman and says, I know who this is. The examiner was a local music fan and had attended many live shows. He said, this is Mia Zapata of the Gits. She was there and then she was gone. So many theories start flying around. One being, maybe this was a religious motivated crime because her body was found in the middle of the street between two churches on either side of the road and she was spread in almost a crucifixion type pose. Another theory that was spreading around was that it could have been her ex-boyfriend, Robert, who she had just broken up with. She was very upset the night she disappeared because of Robert. He had just gotten a new girlfriend, and Mia was still recording with him as a backup singer on his new album, so she still had to be around him. But Robert cooperated fully. He took a lie detector test, and the police said that he was actually visibly shook by the murder of someone that he loved. Robert had an airtight alibi, and he was eliminated immediately. It was also said, could this be a gang-related? Could this be a crazy fan? Could this be someone in the music scene? At this point, no one feels safe. A memorial service is held for Mia, and as friends and family and fans come to mourn, they all leave souvenirs of love and admiration inside of Mia's casket. Very respectfully, and surrounding Mia was locks of hair, poems, notes, jewelry. Mia loved yellow roses. Her father, Richard Zapata, very tearfully tells a story about the day that they were driving to the wake and and they got lost because they weren't very familiar with Seattle. But he looked over and he noticed that all along the streets and sidewalks, there was just people walking, holding yellow roses. And he just looked at his wife and he was just like, we have to follow them. They're going to see Mia. In the aftermath of this senseless loss, friends and family learn that there are less clues with random crimes. Without a crime scene or witnesses, the leads quickly fade. As the police investigation stalled, the remaining gits decided to take action. They hired a private investigator named Lee Heron and staged benefit concerts to raise money for the investigation. The Gits end up asking Joan Jett for help, and then Kathleen Hanna of Bikini Kill and La Tigra jumps on board also. Joan says, let's play the Gits songs. And so with Joan singing, the Gits changed their name to Evil Stig, which means Gits Live backwards. Joan tearfully recalls that the band were just beautiful souls to her, and she said their rapport as a band, as friends, was intense. Joan Jett said that Mia would have been so proud of them for what they did. Joining Joan Jett and Kathleen Hanna were also Nirvana, Eddie Vedder, and Soundgarden. Seven Year Bitch also wrote a song titled M.I.A. with lyrics, Society did this to you. Does society have justice for you? Close to $50,000 was raised and helped 
you know, pay the private investigator. And it did, they ended up bringing out a lot of dirt on people that they knew, but it never actually helped find out who killed her. This private eye, though, she actually was so invested in the case that even when the money ran out, she she still kept helping, trying to help out for free. Following the rape and murder of Mia Zapata in 1993, a number of artists and musicians within Seattle began to meet and discuss the problems of violence within the community and the lack of available resources such as self-defense classes, which were considered impractical and somewhat unaffordable. The birth of the organization Home Alive was informal, with meetings originating as heated discussions in the living rooms of concerned women from the music scene. This group of women, now recognized as the founders of the organization, pooled resources such as arts and music benefits in order to raise funds and study self-defense. Self-defense classes were provided to the community originally for free, but then later on a sliding scale basis. The group continues this work providing classes to individuals as before, but expanding to also educate establishments such as schools and businesses. With primary support still coming from the arts community, Home Alive continues to ground its self-defense education in a movement for social justice. And as the women were quoted, they said, we just want to get home without being fucked with. That's the purpose of Home Alive. After Mia's death, the remaining members of the Gits formed the band The Dancing French Liberals of 48. To them, it was therapeutic. They played hard and they played fast. Their goal was to be able to play at the record release party for the Gits' second album. In 1994, the Gits released their second album called Enter the Conquering Chicken. Every hour that goes by after a crime is committed makes it harder to solve. But that doesn't mean it can't be solved. Fast forward to 10 years later. Joan Jett gets a call from Steve Moriarty, the drummer of the Gits. He doesn't say hello. He doesn't say anything except, we got him. PCR, or polymerase chain reaction, was invented in 1983 by an American biochemist named Carrie Mullis. Carrie Mullis and another biochemist named Michael Smith had helped develop other essential ways of manipulating DNA. They were jointly awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in Chemistry in 1993, the same year of Mia's death. PCR is a method widely used to make millions to billions of copies of a specific DNA sample rapidly. It allows scientists to amplify a very small sample of DNA to enable detailed study. So this actually is what made it possible to test that very small sample from Mia's murder that has now been stored in a freezer since 1993. In 1994, a year after Mia's passing, Congress passed the DNA Identification Act, which authorized the FBI to create a national DNA database of convicted offenders as well as separate databases for missing persons and forensic samples collected from crime scenes. This is called CODIS, the Combined DNA Index System. CODIS is the United States National DNA Database created and maintained by the FBI. CODIS consists of three levels of information, 
local DNA index systems, where DNA profiles originate, state DNA systems, which allows for laboratories within states to share information, and then the national DNA index system, which allows states to compare DNA information with one another. In 2001, the sample of DNA from Mia's body was finally tested with PCR technology. A male profile from the DNA was isolated and then entered into CODIS, and they got no match. CODIS continued running nonstop 24 hours a day with this sample, and 12 months later, they get a match. 48-year-old Jesus Mesquia. He was kicked out of Cuba because he was a felon. He had a lengthy criminal record in multiple states that included convictions for aggravated robbery, aggravated battery of a pregnant woman in 1997, kidnapping, and false imprisonment. He was convicted of a robbery and indecent exposure in Florida in the 80s, and then in California in the late 80s and early 90s, he was also convicted of assault to commit rape. He was now residing in Florida, and now he's out of jail on probation. Seattle police want to question Mesquia, who is now living in Marathon, Florida. Investigators arrive to Marathon to speak to Jesus, and he is gone. They wait, and three days later, he returns home, and police bring him in for questioning. He denies that he ever knew Mia Zapata. He denies ever seeing her, and DNA results would say otherwise. Police learned that Jesus had once lived three blocks from where Mia's body was found in Seattle and soon received a call from a Seattle resident claiming that she recognized Mesquia uh, as the man that had once approached her back in the 90s. She had reported it to police, but they said they couldn't do anything. So he had actually driven his car behind her while she was walking down the street and he followed her while masturbating inside of his car. So now police have someone that can testify in court to what a horrid, disgusting person Jesus Mesquia is. Police put together a series of events that they believe led up to Mia's final moments. Jesus Mesquia was driving the streets that early morning around 2 a.m. and he sees Mia walking alone listening to her Walkman. Since she had music on, she most likely never knew someone was behind her. It is believed that Jesus kidnapped her, put her in the backseat of his car, sexually assaulted her, then strangled her to death. He dumped her body in the middle of the street and left her there. In 2004, Jesus Mesquia was tried and sentenced to 36 years in prison. This was the maximum allowed in the case under Washington state law. On January 21st of 2021, Jesus Mesquia, aged 66, died in a hospital in Pierce County, Washington. No cause of death was revealed. Mia's bandmates, Andy Kessler, Matt Dresner, and Steve Moriarty said this of their friend. Mia Zapata was an extraordinary human being. She was a beloved friend, a gifted songwriter, musician, visual artist, and performer, Rather than focusing on her death, we prefer to remember her friendship, talent, humor, and the incredible art and music she left to the world. Mia's father, Richard, said the words that left a huge impact on me as I was researching this case. Richard Zapata said this of his daughter, Mia. 
She was on loan to me, and now she belongs to all of you. It's neat. I like it. I'm proud of her. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Residue. We hope you join us again next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review on any of your preferred listening platforms. It really helps us to find other listeners like you that might enjoy the show. You should go listen to the kids now when you have a little time. And I hope you all stay safe and stay paranoid. <laughs>